Well, the book of Zechariah is often a neglected book because it seems to be fairly complicated. It's full of amazing visions, and uh, when you open it, you're immediately dropped into eight consecutive visions, and then it concludes with some pretty complicated visual prophecies. Uh, and so I think the struggle can be trying to come through the book of Zechariah and wonder, well, what is this going to have to do with my life? How can this be of any help whatsoever? Uh, it feels like revelation of the Old Testament, and I don't know what to do with it. And uh, I'm looking forward to being able to go uh, through this book, being able to look at its timeless message and the appreciation of the kind of positive declarations this book has. Uh, understanding a little bit of its context and background, I think, will help us to get a sense of why this book would be so valuable uh, for us today. One of the things that we saw as we went through the book of Ezra is that in those first four chapters, you have a discouraged people. They uh, have stopped working on the temple because of the government's resistance to them. And so they have put that work down. And Haggai uh, and Zechariah and Ezra 5 come along and they begin to prophesy. Haggai's message is very strong, essentially saying, uh, so you find it's okay to work on your own homes that you're not going to work on God's temple uh, and is challenging them to get back to work to be able to receive God's blessings. In fact, he asked them to look around and consider how they haven't been blessed and all their labors and their and their work have essentially amounted to nothing because God is keeping them uh, from being blessed. You'll notice that in the very first verse of Zechariah 1 sets a time marker that Zechariah's visions of these prophecies comes uh, only two months after Haggai starts prophesying. So uh, Haggai comes on the scene and says, you guys got to get back to work. Zechariah comes on the scene and he's just telling them about all of these amazing visions that he's seen. And the purpose of these visions is not for the people to be uh, terrified or upset or, or, or think that the wrath of God is coming against them, but rather it really is a, a book that contains a message of hope. It is a message of encouragement to the people. Every single vision is an encouragement to them and gives them a picture of what God is going to accomplish for them and the great things that lie ahead in the future. And that is why I think this book is extremely relevant for us. Two reasons. Number one, it is a book of encouragement. It is showing who God is. It is showing what God is wanting to do for his people and expresses how God is going to be with his people, even though they were in hardships and going through difficulties. And then more importantly, as to its relevance, most of these visions and prophecies did not find their fulfillment in the days of the audience who heard them. Rather, they found their fulfillment in the days of Christ and thus in his kingdom and the events that would come afterward, which means its application is far more relevant to us than it was even to them. And so there is uh, two really important reasons why knowing this book is extremely valuable. Messages of hope, picturing what life was going to be like when, when God's Messiah came and the kingdom was established and what he was going to accomplish for his people. So that's going to be our lens and our vision then of what we're looking at as we go through this book. This first chapter 
is a really important starting point that Zechariah has for the people. And I think it is fair that the, the to title this first chapter, this, this question, has, has God forgotten his people? Has God forsaken them? Has he left them? Does, does he seem then not to want to be active in, with them any longer? So notice with me the first six verses, and we'll see how this question not only unfolds, but then also is answered by God. Zechariah 1 and verse 1, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds, but they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. This is probably the most straightforward part of the book, right here at the very beginning, where you have here uh, essentially a reminder as Zechariah begins his prophecy. And his reminder is very simple when he comes there in verse 2 and just says, God was very angry with your ancestors. God was angry with your prior generation, your parents and your grandparents. God was not happy with them and says the reason why was because of their sinning. And God kept sending messengers with this very important message. If you will return to me, then I will return to you. Come back to me. And you'll notice that verse four says, however, they didn't listen. They didn't pay attention. And so as God is saying, come back to me, come back to the Lord. I want you to return. If you'd come back to me, I'll be with you. They didn't pay attention. They didn't listen. And then notice the question that Zechariah asked in verse 5. How'd that do for your parents? <laughs> verse 5. Your fathers, where are they? It didn't go well. The whole point is that what God said proved to be true. God said, I'm angry with you. You're going to be judged. You need to return to me before it's too late. They didn't listen and they were killed and sent off into captivity. It didn't go well for them. God's word proved to be true. And the great thing that you'll notice in verse six is that when the people hear this message from Zechariah, just like you see in Haggai, the people repent. The people understand and they listen and they turn. And we saw that when we looked at Haggai's prophecy a few weeks ago, that the people respond to that and get back to work. You see that in Ezra 5 as well. The people then respond and get back to work. Now, the rest of this book, and I think the important lens that, that lays out here is to remind the people about the need to return to the Lord and to give them reasons why they should return to God. And the start point is learn from the past. God keeps his word. And we are probably in one of the most privileged positions of this, that we are able to look back at all of God's pronouncements of judgment and see that they were actually fulfilled. That you can see it from Adam and Eve or see it in Noah or Sodom and Gomorrah or on Assyria or on Babylon or on Persia or on Greece or on Rome. 
We just have all these places where God made promises and said, return to me or here's what's going to happen. And God said, you need to learn from that. God's word always comes to pass. Or to use the language here, God's word kind of catch, will catch up with you. I love how he says that in verse 6, did his word not overtake your fathers? It will eventually catch up with you. What God says is eventually going to come true. It will catch up to you and overtake you. And so Zechariah, in calling for the people to repent, is now going to say, now I want to show you why you should come back. I want to give you pictures and visions and images so that you will be encouraged to come back to God and to do the work. And so this is what this book is essentially doing. As all of these these visions unfold and these prophecies unfold, it is a book of encouragement to call for the people to get back to work and to serve the living God. The first picture then is found in verse seven, this first vision about where God is in terms of if he has forgotten his people. Verse seven, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is in the month of Sheba, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night. And behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen. Behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. And then I said, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. And so the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. And then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease, for while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity and the Lord again will comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. I want you to notice this imagery that's given is that the first thing Zechariah sees is here is this man in verse eight. He is on a red horse behind him and among the trees are all these other colored horses And one of the favorite things that I hope you will latch on to as you study the book of Zechariah is you will notice that every time these visions come up, a question will be asked, which is like in verse verse nine there, where it says, what are these? (laughs) 
Oh, you don't know. Well, good. Yeah, no, we don't. We don't know what this means. And here is Zechariah going, I don't know what this vision is talking about. Why do I see a man on a red horse and a bunch of other horses behind him walking around the myrtle trees? What's that supposed to mean? And every single time there is an answer that is given. Verse 9, I will show you what these are. And so the explanation begins to be given that these are the ones who are patrolling the earth. Verse 10, they are giving their report to God. And verse 11, we have patrolled the earth and the earth remains at rest. Now you would read that and you might think, well, that should be a good thing. All right. We've sent out these patrolling horses and you've got these riders and they've gone through the whole earth and they're looking around everywhere and all the earth is at peace and rest. And you go, well, that's good, right? Well, you notice that is not good. The angel is very upset by this in verse 12. Notice his answer is not, Lord of hosts, this is great that we are still having peace in all the earth. No, he says, this is all a negative. How long are you going to be angry? How long is this going to continue? How long until you do something? How long until there is mercy? How long until you finally act? The, the, the angel is saying, you need to do something. We don't want the earth at rest. We need you to act against these nations and do something in, in the world. That's what the angel's response is. It's how long until you act for his people. Now, you can get a sense of that if you can imagine if you were living in a time or a place where you were under subjugation of another nation and you were essentially considered captive to them. Imagine when Israel was under Babylonian captivity or even when Zechariah is speaking under Persian rule and they have had resistance by the Persians from building this temple and have been resisting them. You don't want status quo. You don't want it to keep going like that. You need upheaval. There needs to be a change. There needs to be a flipping. There needs to be something to happen. How long, God, until you do that? So that's why it's a negative perspective to see everything still going on. We want action. We want God to rise up. We want him to do something. And notice how God responds in verse 13. It says, the Lord answered with gracious and comforting words to the angel. You have to just love and appreciate what God is doing here because the angel seems to be representing the people of God. Well, why aren't you going to do something? When are you going to act? When will you show mercy? When will you rise up on our behalf? And God's first answer or the first picture we get about this is God speaking comforting and speaking gracious words to the angel. And notice what the first sentence is that he says in verse 14. I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. This is such an important image right here. Such an important statement. Here is the angel pleading. Aren't you going to do something? Isn't there going to be mercy for God's people? Are you not going to finally act on their behalf? And comforting words from come from God. And notice what his first declaration is, is I am exceedingly jealous for my people. Now, what a thought to consider that God has a burning passion for his people. That's what he's saying right here. Let me speak some comforting words to you. I have a burning passion. I am exceedingly jealous 
for my people. I am compelled to act on behalf of my people. That is how I feel. That is what I see. And I'm going to act on their behalf. And you notice that verse 16 describes some of the things that he's going to do. I'm going to return to my people, returning to Jerusalem with mercy. And he says that house of mine, that temple is going to be rebuilt. And then verse 17, he continues and says, the cities are going to overflow with prosperity. And the Lord again will comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. He is going to choose them, comfort them, show them mercy, cause them to overflow with prosperity. He is jealous for his people and he is going to act on their behalf. Now, Here's the thing that I think can be perhaps the struggle of all of this is here is God saying, oh, no, don't worry. I am jealous for my people and I'm going to show them mercy and I'm going to cause them to overflow with prosperity and I'm going to choose them and I'm going to come for them. I'm going to do all of these wonderful things for them. Here is God answering the question and saying, I'm not blind to your hardships. I know what's going on. That's why you have to appreciate the imagery. Is God asleep at the wheel? He doesn't know what's going on on the earth. No, we've got horses riding through the whole earth and coming back and telling God, here's what the world looks like. It's very much trying to relate in a human way. To help us get a sense of how God knows everything that's going on. And he sees what is happening in the world. He sees what's happening with his people. He knows exactly what's going on. And it is his jealousy for his people that he's going to give mercy and comfort and he's going to act. And so here is the statement where God is saying, I care about what is happening to my people and I am about to do something. But here's the problem. At least for us. God always says, but that's on my timeline. That's the answer. Oh, yes, I'm jealous for my people and I'm going to do things. It just wasn't yesterday when you thought it should happen. And I think this is often where we struggle. Because I think we can be like the angel here who was wondering at God. Well, aren't you going to show mercy to your people? Aren't you going to rise up and do something? Aren't you going to be angry with them no more and now show them comfort? When are you going to act and respond on your people? When are you going to vindicate them? When are you going to do something? And it is a wonderful picture that's being given to us that we are waiting for God to judge and waiting for God to act. And God's consistent message is, I absolutely care for my people. I care what's happening in the world. I care what's happening to them. And I am going to do something about it. But you're going to have to wait for it. You're going to have to wait for it. And watch and see exactly what I'm going to do. In fact, that's where the second vision comes in. It confirms the first vision. It is very similar, though it is much shorter and comforting words. Verse 18, I lifted my eyes and I saw and behold four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel and Jerusalem. And then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, they are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah 
to scatter it. Again, you have to appreciate every time something happens, Zechariah goes, what's that? (laughs) What's happening here? What's taking place? And here is the same idea. These are the horns that have scattered Jerusalem and Judah and Israel. These are the powers that have come against God's people and caused them trouble and difficulty and sent them off into captivity and scattered them all the land. And then he turns around and says, but now I want you to see these four craftsmen. What are they coming to do? They're coming to deal with those horns. They're coming to deal with them and to terrify them and to scatter them. They're coming to deal with all of that. This is the picture again is that God sees our enemies and he sees our hardships. It's not that God is blind to these things, but rather how often God is trying to say, I will act for my people and I will scatter your enemies. I've used this phrase to you so many times is that God is always telling us your enemies are God's enemies. And the New Testament is filled with that kind of language. Like in Romans 12 and verse 19, what is God always reminding us? You go ahead and do good in the face of evil because vengeance is mine. I'm going to do something about it. You don't have to worry about it. You don't need to act on your behalf. You don't need to be worried about the nations and the powers and the people and evil. is doing. Don't worry about all that. I see what's happening. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to act on your behalf on my timeline. I'm going to deal with it. So you do good. You don't worry about it. And you let God take care of it. And that's what Romans 12, what the Apostle Paul is saying. Why we can do that. Why we can do good to those who are evil. Why we can love our enemies and pray for those who persecute. Is because God is going to ultimately deal with that. God is the one who's going to sort all that out. Not us. And that's what these two visions are doing. Is trying to communicate to the people and say to them. God has not forgotten you. God absolutely sees your hardships. He sees your pains. He sees your concerns. And he has not forgotten you. He will deal with the enemies. So that leads then to this lesson. I just want to talk about three quick points then of what I think we get from this first chapter. Number one, one of the things that I think is amazing about what Zechariah says here and what is unfolding in this is that Zechariah's first message is it's not too late to return. It's not too late to return. You might remember that here the angel of the Lord in verse 12 says, how long are you not going to show mercy against which these people, you have been angry for 70 years. 70 years God has been angry. Seventy years he's shown his anger to these people. You would think after 70 years, you'd probably go, you know what? I don't suppose there's any hope for me, right? I mean, 70 years of anger seems like that's pretty bad and there's no chance for me to return. God doesn't want me, right? Wrong. Even though God was angry with his people, he's still telling them to come back. Even though he is upset at their sinning and upset at their wickedness, he is still calling for them to come back. And this should always resonate in our lives and in our hearts that you can mess up. And God will still take you back when you come to him. Seventy years God has been angry. And yet what was the message? Return to me and I will return to you. 
not return to me and it's just too late. So, you know, too bad. You know, we kind of do that, right? After all these years, it's just too little, too late is what we like to do. Too little, too late now. God is never too little, too late. Return to me and I'll return to you. Even after 70 years, return to me and I will return to you. I will give comforting words. I will show mercy. I will show grace. I will act on behalf of my people. And so there's a beautiful picture here. You can have full restoration to God. The ball is in your court. Return to him. He will return to you. First great picture of this opening prophecy of Zechariah. Second, you need to come back because God is extremely jealous for you. I don't know that we always think of God in this light. And that's why this prophecy is so important. Is that sometimes we just often don't get a sense of the intensity by which God wants us back. We can really fail to get our minds around how desperately God wants every single person to be with him. And there's pictures all over the scriptures of it. Some of them we, we really enjoy. I put on the, uh, on the screen there, Luke 15, where Jesus tells a parable about all of these lost things. You know, there was this person who had sheep. And he ended up losing one of his sheep. And you know what he does? He leaves 99 other sheep. Because he desperately wants to go get that one back. And then he goes, and there was this woman who had 10 coins. And she lost a coin. And you know what she did? Rather than just relishing the fact that, well, she had 9 out of 10 and that ain't too bad. She tears the house apart trying to find this one coin. And then Jesus moves again and goes... Or it might be like a father who has a son that is wayward and lost. And the father is just looking down the road, waiting, hoping for the son to return. So that when he does, he might say, I'm unworthy to be part of the house. But there's going to be a celebration and a full restoration of that son back into the household of God. God is always trying to convince us how jealous he is for us, how much he wants us to be with him. And friends, that is what generates the wrath of God that we read about. Think about it like this. In a marriage relationship, even a healthy marriage, you are jealous for your spouse. You don't want them being off with other people. They're supposed to be faithful and true to you. And that's how God's picturing it. Is I want your undivided devotion. I want you to want to be with me and not the idols and not the sin and the false gods and all the other things. I want you to be with me and I'm outraged by the fact that I've done all this for you and you don't want to be with me. I can't believe it. You will say no to all that I've done for you. That's the image that's being portrayed here. God is desperate for his people. He desperately wants to be with you. And he desperately wants your salvation. Number three. 
Return to God because he will bring comfort and he will bring healing and he will bring mercy on his timeline. This, I think, if I could call it, this is really what one of the big pieces of what faith is supposed to be for those who follow Jesus. Is that part of our faith is trusting that God is going to help us and give us the mercy that we need at just the right time. When we read through people in the scriptures like Joseph. I'm ready for God to intervene in the very first chapter. Here are these terrible brothers. God, jump in there and do something. His brothers are awful and evil and wicked. They want to kill him. And so, God, you got to stop them, right? Or at least intervene when you get to chapter 39, when we have the whole problem in Potiphar. So you got to jump in. He's the one that's trying to do right. And look at all the false things are happening. Or, God, a few chapters later, you have to jump in now. He's in the dungeon and he's been forgotten and, and nobody seems to care. When are you going to do something? We want him to jump in at chapter 37, chapter 39, chapter 42. We don't want to wait around for chapter 50. Same thing with Job. Here's Job, and he loses everything. He's absolutely devastated. Well, God, jump in in chapter 3 and help him. Okay, well, the friends are terrible. Well, maybe chapter 9. Jump in now. Chapter 15. Now's the time, right? Chapter 42? 42. Why not back there at 3? Because it's on God's timeline. It's always on God's timeline. We look at it and we go from chapter 3 to chapter 41 and say, God must not care. God has forgotten me. God doesn't care about me. He has no concern for me. He's not going to act on my behalf. And so why bother? And I want you to see that God is always saying, I am jealous for my people. I am going to come to you with comfort and mercy, but it's going to be at just the right time. It is going to be on God's timeline. And that is the comfort and the healing that we look forward to and the comfort that we look forward to and need is not when we think it's best, but when God thinks it's best. And I always think it's best right now. It needs to be right now. Later's not good now. God always says, wait, I'm going to act on your behalf. And, And friends, I know you know this truth. You've surely seen it in your life. You've seen it in the lives of others. I've seen it in my own life and I've seen it in the lives of others. How many times you can feel forgotten by God and you just need to wait for him to act. And you can feel empty and hurt and lost and think, God has forgotten me. He has not forgotten you. Look to him in faith. Look for his comfort and mercy to come at a time when we need it most. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, there are so many so many times and so many things that we go through where we can feel like you have forgotten us. We can feel like we are separated from you. We can feel like 
you're not going to act. You can feel like you just are not paying attention. But Lord, I help. I, I pray that you would help us see that you are fully aware of all that is going on in the world. All that happens to the people of God. And you are fully aware of everything that happens to each and every one of us. And Lord, I pray that we would put our faith in you to know that you know what is best for us. You know when we need rescue most. You know when we need the comforting words the most. You know when we need to hear the words of mercy. You know when you need to change our circumstances. And so, Lord, I pray that we would always see that, number one, it's not too late to come back to you, that you desperately want us, and that you will act for our good and do great things for us. Lord, in the times of, um, of darkness, times when we feel like there's not light at the end of the tunnel, I pray, Lord, that you would come to us in those moments and strengthen our faith and give us the vision that we need to see how much you love us, how jealous you are for us, and how you will act on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, for being the God you are. Thank you for seeing our condition. And thank you for always doing what is best for us. In Jesus' name. It's an amazing kickoff to the book as Zechariah is going to walk around telling the people, you have a great God who loves you and cares about you and wants good towards you. And he starts it off with that message. You have a God who will bring you comfort and healing if you will return to him. Give your life to him. Follow him with all of your heart and serve him faithfully. Can we help you do that this evening? Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?